Yeah. Hi there, Joe. I didn't see you slash your name. Yeah, 
Good morning. Good morning. Guess it's time to get the show going here. I don't have any announcements, but I understand that Dixie had surgery during the week. I haven't heard what the outcome on it is. If anybody knows, they could fill us in on it. And that's all I've got, so I'll go ahead and turn it over to Dan and we'll see you in worship. Good morning there. Uh, let's go ahead and stand for this first set of songs and we'll uh, praise and worship together. <clears throat> Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know the sin the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him more and more. Jesus, Precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I'm so glad I learned to trust thee, precious Jesus, Savior, friend. And I know that thou art with me, will be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. In moments like these, I sing out a song, I sing out a love song to Jesus. In moments like these, I lift up my voice, I lift up my voice to the Lord. Singing, I love you, Lord. Singing, I love you, Lord. Singing, I sing out a song, I sing out a love song to Jesus. In moments like these, I lift up my hands, I lift up my hands to the Lord. Singing, I love 
depth of our heart, the love that you've shared with us. We let us be partaken of the communion. May we truly remember. May we be thankful to the depth of our hearts for the blood you precious love shed to make it possible <coughs> to be in your kingdom. That we can bow at your throne for all eternity. And for the, the hope we have to gather around the throne and sing the song of Moses. Thank you, Father, for the hope you give us. In Jesus' name. We'll use this next song to prepare our minds for communion today. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm to the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of of peace when fears are stilled when striving cease my comforter Yeah. 
trick to get this thing open, but I just can't it. I want to say another prayer. That's, that's kind of our tradition for, for the cup. Lord, we thank you again for your blood that you shed. This juice that we're about to drink that represents that blood that actually washes us clean. The blood that you shed that enables us to have communion with you and to be in your light. Thank you for your sacrifice again. Thank you for the blood that you shed. We pray these things in your name. 
I know this is the time that we share our blessings with God and monetarily, and I know there's a basket out there that you can drop your contributions in. I think we can still go online and uh, yep. contribute that way as well. So let's pray for the contribution. Lord, we are so blessed. We're so lucky to live in this wonderful country and this beautiful valley. And, and uh, Lord, we are just so monetarily blessed. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the good things we have and ask that you would look into our hearts and that you would encourage each of us to give back generously, financially, and with our time and with our prayers. Lord, help us to be your servants in every aspect of our life. We thank you for your grace and your love. We pray in your name. <clears throat> My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust. salvation and the power 
and the authority of his Christ are finally here. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down from heaven unto earth. He accused them day and night before our God. They defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony, for they did not love their lives, but laid their lives down for him. Rejoice, O heavens, you citizens of heaven. Rejoice, be glad, but woe to you, people of the world, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that his time is lost. Good morning, everybody. It is uh, it is good to be back. Um, we were on we've been on vacation for the last two weeks, and so uh, the outside world is still there, and it is great. Uh, we were able to go down to Newport, uh, Oregon, uh, for about nine days and camp by the beach. And we realized just how much uh, you know the beach culture is still in our kids' lives. Because um, we're from Ventura, so we live 30 minutes from the beach. We live like 20 minutes from the beach, so to camp half a mile from it was great. Um, and then we were able to go up. Uh, we've been here for two and a half years, and we've never seen uh, Mount Rainier. Or never been up to Mount Rainier, been up to Wonderland and up to Paradise. We were able to go up there. Um, and it is, I mean, the Pacific Northwest is just, there's no place like it. I mean, I, I love Yosemite. I love Tahoe. That still has a place in my heart. But Rainier, man, that... That place is ridiculous. That place is, it's insane. Um, and much like what we're talking about this morning, uh, I have eight chapters to cover, and it's full of insanity. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter, I mean, it is absolutely bonkers what we're about to go through. Because we're starting in chapter 12 of Revelation, and when many people think of the most intimidating sections of Revelation, of this book, it's here. It is 12, uh, it is 12 through 20. So we're not going to cover, we can't cover absolutely everything, uh, because one, I don't think you guys have three hours to spend, um, and I think if I demanded you guys to spend three hours, you'd kill me, all right? You would throw your Bibles at me, um, and uh, I will say this, I have, uh, I love the book of Revelation, I absolutely, I absolutely love it, because it's like a puzzle. Um, there's a lot of history. I have a lot of study guides. If you are interested and you would like a study guide on Revelation, I can give you one. Um, there are many authors whom I, uh, I respect on this. There's many who are just absolutely crazy. Um, and, and, but I have some good material on this. Um, and, and so if you would like that, come find me after church. I will give you a stack of material um, on all of this stuff. Because uh, it's crazy. In order to understand most of this, you have to have a, a, a master's level degree of understanding in the Old Testament. And I do not. I, I, I am a scholar of the Old Testament. I absolutely love it. But if you want to understand what the meaning is to all of this, my first suggestion, my first direction for you is to read your entire Old Testament, all of it, and then read it over again. And then you might start understanding how Revelation can make sense. Because first we have to approach the book, we have to approach these chapters reminding ourselves this was written to us, all right? This was not written to us. This was written to seven churches in modern-day Turkey, 
all right? It was written to them, and they are, in understanding history, knowing they're going to be under Roman rule for the next 500 years, even though Rome as an empire is going to be split in half, they're going to be suffering through the persecution of Roman emperors for time to come, all right? And it was written to them. It wasn't written even in our language. This was written in Greek, all right? And this was written in just Greek. It was written in prophetic Greek, Hebrew Greek. And I know that doesn't make much sense, but this is written in the same tone as Ezekiel, as Isaiah, as, as Daniel. It's written with exaggeration, and it's dramatic, and that's why I love it so much, all right? It's like a movie that you're seeing in front of you. Because look at this, it opens. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Are you, are you imagining that? Are you picturing this? Um, I, I love also, there's, there's another, uh, it's a weird thing I, I love doing, is I love Googling Revelation imagery uh, because it's ridiculous, it, especially Renaissance Revelation imagery. It's, it's marvelous, guys. You should just watch it. It's just, it makes no sense. So she's clothed with the sun. She's got the moon under her feet. She's got 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. How does that work? All right. And seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman and who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then we hear this, this declaration uh, which Ken just read. It's dramatic, it's amazing, it's, it's otherworldly, uh, but it is a very heavenly view of Genesis chapter three, verse 15. This is a more expanded view because there's another aspect to this, another layer of difficulty when reading Revelation is, Imagine being a timeless God, a God that can see all of human existence all the time because he stands outside of it. When I explain this to our youth, I draw a timeline. I draw a timeline across a piece of paper, across a, a whiteboard. And I say, this is when Christ happened. This is when Columbus found Cuba. This is when our nation started. And this is when you were born. I said, the problem with this is you are there. All right, you can look back, but you really can't look forward. You can see hindsight's 2020, but even then, guys, our hindsight's not all that good, all right, because we are filtering our past through our baggage, our garbage. We are filtering it through our own worldviews because we're tinted, we're biased when we look into the past. But imagine God taking a step outside of that and seeing it all laid before him, all laid out before him. And, and that's how God exists. And so imagine that kind of God trying to communicate to you all of human existence or the point of human existence. I mention that because 
What we just read is a heavenly view of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And in it, we see the, the punishments that God is going to lay out to Adam and Eve. Do you remember what they were? All right, or you remember how it laid out? I, I love it. It's, it's, it's actually pretty cool. God, I mean, again, uh, Adam and Eve, both, they touched the fruit. They were tempted by Satan, the accuser. They were tempted by the serpent. Uh, but there, he's, again, I don't know how you guys imagine the Garden of Eden or the serpent there. I don't imagine it was a gigantic red dragon curled around an apple tree. All right, but I, if there's a serpent, he tempts Adam and Eve, and then they hide, they're making clothes, and then God is searching for them because there's already separation now that exists between man and between God. And he calls out, Adam, where are you guys? And so finally they come out and they're meek, they're guilty, they're feeling shame for the first time in their lives. And who does God turn to first? This is quiz time. I gotta make sure you guys are paying attention. Who does God look to first? How's your Old Testament history? Who's Adam? Did anyone say Adam? Good, then you're right. I'm gonna assume you all said it. Rod did it, I knew he was gonna be right. Turns to Adam, right? What does Adam do? Blames the woman. Yes. But the woman you gave me, it's her fault. All right, and what does the woman do? <laughs> Blames the serpent, passes the baton, right? That's how sin, that's how sin perverts truth. That's kind of, what's amazing is, guys, and here's what's really cool about what names mean. Adam, Adam means earth, Eve means mother, Satan, devil means accuser. You have Adam and Eve accusing each other of sin. They're already being the devil to one another. That's what the name means. It's really interesting when you get into the names of these, into the names of these things. And so Adam turns to Eve, Eve turns to the serpent, and then what, God, what does God do to the serpent? God doesn't even wait to hear what the serpent has to say, which I find very interesting. All right, he immediately punishes the serpent. My mask? Do I need Oh, gosh, sorry. All right. Man, thank you. Just throw up, yeah, throw up your hand if I wander too far away. Can't wait the wireless play? Can't wait till this is all over. So... <laughs> so we have this, God looks at the serpent, God looks at the serpent and punishes him. And, there, and there's a twofold punishment. The first is he chops his arms and legs off, which is always interesting. Why does he do that? The reason why he chops his arms and legs off of the serpent is because he's about to punish Adam and Eve. But both of their punishments, though they have a physical aspect, are more spiritual in nature. And so Adam and Eve need to see that their punishments have actual, real-life, physical consequences. So imagine if God chops the legs off of the serpent, whom you all just blame for this, and then he looks to you and says, your turn. You're like, oh, left first, please, and then maybe right, if I can keep the right arm, that'd be great. You're thinking punishment's gonna be real. But the punishment to the serpent is what I wanna focus on, because that is what we just read about. He looks to the serpent, I'm gonna put an enemy between your seed and her seed. He's going to crush you, and you're going to bite his heel. And at first, we look at this, this punishment. We look at this, and that's what it is. It is a declaration on the Satan that your time is numbered. He knew from the very beginning. I love how when people wonder if Satan is omniscient, all right? That is a big question I always get. Is Satan omniscient, or are the angels omniscient? And I thought, why would Satan need to be omniscient? He already knew from the very beginning what was going to happen. God laid it out before him, and then he also has access to the same book we do. He gets to see all of this out. That's why the frustration at the very end of this experience is so palpable, is so real for us. Because even though Satan knows what's going to happen, it doesn't make him any less more frustrated. 
And so we have this heavenly view. Before God, we see Revelation 3.15 played out. And we see a pregnant woman. And we see her about to give birth. And at her head are 12 stars. And this represents the people of God, the chosen people of God. And we have her clothed with the sun and we see the moon. That means heaven is behind her. And she gives birth to a male son. And this is, he's going to rule with an iron scepter. Meaning that judgment and wrath are going to be in his right hand. Because that's what that means. And so the dragon is waiting to consume this baby, but it is taken from him. God takes this baby, takes her, or actually she flees into the wilderness, but God has a hand in this. And so she flees up into heaven. The, the, the Satan, or, uh, Satan and the dragon go up to heaven and there's a war and he's cast out and she is on the run. And what we see, there are three aspects I want to show you about this particular scene. One, we see God's eternal plan laid out perfectly. All right, perfectly in that we see it promised, we see it fulfilled, and we see God acting within this promise. And what I mean by that is, it, this is an, a, a heavenly perspective, again, of the Old Testament. We see the seed being passed on through Noah, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, or I'm sorry, Judah. We see the seed being passed through the kings, through David and his children. It is not perfect, but we see it being passed along. We hear about the stories of Judah and Tamar, of Rahab, of Boaz and Ruth, and we see the seed of Jesus. We see the promise, both escaping into the wilderness, and we see God working through faulty, mistaken people full of sin that are broken in of themselves, but we see that promise coming to fruition in Jesus Christ. That is the eternal plan of God, and it's said so poetically, so dramatically, but we also see to what lengths Satan will go to to disrupt that plan. He is the father of lies. What he says is a lie. However, 40% of what he says is true. Exactly. I don't like that either. 40%, meaning he's just over half lies. 40% of that is true. Surely you will not die. So Satan, we see that he will go to whatever lengths he can to disrupt the plan he knows that ultimately he cannot disrupt. God laid it out in Genesis 3.15. He will go to whatever lengths, guys, think of this. He will go to whatever, at whatever lengths he can to disrupt this, knowing that he cannot possibly disrupt it. Now, we can look at that and write, don't you guys want to say praise God? Pray, yeah, amen. Praise God that he, that God is in control. However, in that proclamation, in that, in that declaration to God, we have to at least look at, all right, who's the fallout? Who suffers that frustration? Us. Praise God that your plan will see fruition, that has seen fruition. Praise God that Jesus came down and at the cross he destroyed death. That doesn't make Satan any less deadly to us. Though Satan has been and is destroyed, we still suffer his accusations. He does not care to what lengths he can go to to disrupt God's plan. And here's another part of this that again is so awful for us, but beautiful for God, is though he cannot stop Christ, he cannot stop our access to Christ, he can stop our want 
He can stop our heart. He can't put a quick to that. He can allow, and, and the way he does that is if we give him control, is if we sign over and admit that God, God's plan was worthless to begin with. We can't allow that to happen. But then again, the story continues. And much like the entire book of Revelation, what, what John is attempting to do is he, he, he does not reason like we reason. We reason linearly, meaning that we begin with a problem, we begin with a question, we hypothesize, we experiment, and then we come out with a solution, and then we test that solution, we hypothesize again, and the process goes on, right? That's how we, especially in Western cultures, that's how we reason. That's how we come to a truth. And then once we come to a truth, guys, that's our truth. You don't question it, you don't challenge it, that's our truth, right? We, kind of, we can kind of agree this is how we really experience reason, this is how we experience logic. I remember as a child learning logic and learning it that way and then having tons of questions because I wanted to annoy everybody I came into contact with. I said, yeah, but, what? no, this is how it is, boom, 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 boom. I'm like, yeah, but what if you're wrong? No, I, I wouldn't say something like that to a teacher, but this is how we reason. In Eastern culture, especially in Middle Eastern culture, which is how John grew up, he, did not, he doesn't care about linear progression of reason, of logic, of, of question and answer. How they approach reason, how they approach logic, and how they approach truth is very circular. Meaning that how John will present a problem, and he will go about it in a circular way, and he will explain it. The seals, very similar. You go in a seal, and then it'll put a pin in it. And we see within the fifth seal that we have these, these, uh, these martyrs who are under the altar. They're about to be sacrificed, all right? And then we kind of keep going. And at the end of the seventh seal, we kind of have an interlude. We have a, a different story that happens, all right? And then outside of that, we don't have, it doesn't go straight from the seals uh, to the trumpets. We have another story, and, and John kind of, again, circles in. And then we have the trumpets, and then we have another. And it's this kind of expanded view of John basically saying the same thing, which he will end with in Revelation chapter 21. We're not going to get there yet. But I do need to say this. I feel like it is important that if when you approach the next chapter of 13 and you continue from this, numbers have a meaning. Um, and prophetic language has a meaning. And this does take I know the Sunday isn't the place for this, but I want to put this on your shoulders. It takes research to understand this. Uh, the number seven. Uh, where, do we, where do we see number seven the most? Within the Bible. You guys can... What's that? You guys can speak up. I won't throw Bibles at you. Okay. What's that? Sorry? Jesus' teachings on forgiveness. Yes. Jesus' teachings on forgiveness. We see this a lot in the Beatitudes. We see this a lot in creation. All right. Seven days of creation. We see seven repeated often, often, it's repeated quite often within the Old Testament and within the New Testament. Twelve, where does twelve come up in the Bible? Tribes, apostles, we see twelve approach. We've seen it in Revelation a lot, 144,000, which we're about to read. We have 144 kings on their thrones bowing before God. It's a multiple of twelve. Uh, three, the unity of God. These have meaning. Uh, the number three means the unity, perfect unity. All right, divine unity. Seven means divine completion. It means on the seventh day, God completed it. God completed everything and he rested. And an example, the best way I put to this is 666. I love the number 666 uh, because when people approach this number, they think it's evil. All right, they think it's evil. They think it's the, the number of Satan. It's not the number of Satan. All right, if three is divine completion, 
If seven is divine perfection, then what would six be? One less than seven. Imperfect. Shy of seven. Shy of perfect. Close, but not quite. Three. So if we have three sixes, we have perfect imperfection. And that's why within Revelation, he says, 666 is the number of beast and the number of man. This is how, guys, we can get lost within Revelation. 666, that's us. That's us. The beast, the two beasts that come. It's us. It's products of our imperfection. It is the products of what's wrong with us. That is why I love when he talks about the 144,000. Again, another interlude, another stop. And he talks about these people whom we last we saw was in the fifth seal. These people, these martyrs waiting to suffer. They're waiting and they're looking back and God, when will you come? God, when will you exact punishment? That's what the fifth seal was. God, when will you come? When will you exact judgment? When will you revenge yourself for us? What they've done for us? And God's response in the fifth seal is, wait, time is coming. When we see the 144,000, we see the complete, we see all the people of God before the, uh, the throne room of God, and we see that that seal has now been completed. All those martyrs have been killed. All those suffering has ended. And now we have this moment of all the people of God before the throne room praising him. And they're praising him. And on them are the mark. They are marked with the Holy Spirit of God, who is a seal on our hearts. And they are standing before God. And God looks at them and says, you are pure. You are blameless. Not a lie was on their lips. And you kind of see, this is harking back to this accusation that Adam and Eve first threw at one another. There's not a lie on their lips. They are purified. Nothing is wrong with them. And because of that, we gain a heavenly perspective on wrath. On, on wrath, on God's wrath. And I want to spend, again, more time on this, because when we get into the bowls of wrath being poured out onto the world, we have to be very careful how we talk about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not a magical object that we get to use and hurl against our political opponents, hurl against our country, hurl against each other, because something bad is happening. It is not, we cannot look at this and say, this is just the wrath of God or the wrath of God on you. You have to be very careful with this. And the reason is, within the Old Testament, we see God using his wrath as often on his own people as he does other nations. God's wrath is merely his expression against sin. That is what the wrath of God is. That is how he, think of it like this. God is allergic to sin. He breaks out in wrath. All right, that's the easiest. His wrath is his expression to sin, against sin, for sin. When he sees sin, it causes him wrath. And when I grew up, uh, when I, when I again, this is because I wasn't listening on Sunday mornings, but when I grew up, I just merely thought God just couldn't be near sin, right? And I just kind of grew up like he just, he always had a block between him and sin. But then I read the Bible and I saw God being very close to sinful people. All right, Moses, who there was no other prophet like him besides Jesus, meaning that God saw him face to face 
there are multiple points within the book of Genesis and Exodus where God wanted to kill Moses. All right, meaning that there are, there, and there's one amazing example where God calls Moses to go back to Egypt. He doesn't want to, denies him, what, six times? Five or six times? Finally, Moses says, fine, I'll do it. He's on his way to Egypt, but he has forgotten to circumcise his own kids. And so Zipporah gets a dream, and God is telling her, I'm about to kill your husband because he didn't do this thing. And so Zipporah circumcises her, her own children, goes out to Moses, and it's a very gross story, but it illustrates an important point. But the wrath of God can be just as easily pointed at us as it can anywhere else. It's not, the wrath of God is not up to us to pour out. The wrath of God is not up to us to ensure it's poured out anywhere else. And Jonah is the best example of that. Right? Jonah, Nineveh. Jonah goes to Nineveh, says, and he goes again reluctantly. Again, a gigantic um, fish had to eat him and spit him out on a beach in order to prove a point. And I thought, man, I thought I was tough-headed, but I'm pretty sure God would have to do very similar things for me if I had to go back to California and do something like that. I'm like, God, you're going to have to bring a way bigger fish than you did to Jonah. Uh, and, and, but he goes reluctantly. He preaches a word for eight days. He preaches a message, very simple message, turn or burn. And, and he goes throughout Nineveh eight days, and Nineveh turns, and it ticks him off, and it enrages him because he wants the wrath of God to be poured out on the city, but instead God decides, decides to save this city. But we know historically, a hundred years or so more, the city is going, to be, is going to be destroyed anyway. I say all of that because when we get down to the bowls of wrath, the bowls of wrath are God's to pour out. And one of the crazy, this, this verse kind of always turns me because again, I keep thinking about who deserves it the most, right? Who deserves the bowl of wrath? Is it the Republicans or the Democrats? Is it America? Is it China, right? And like, who deserves it the most, guys? This is what we think about. At least this is what I think about. Maybe I'm just messed up, all right? If someone turns out in front of me, I'm like, bowl of wrath on you, all right? Uh, if I go to the McDonald's on the east side and they mess up my order every single time, bowl of wrath on them. Yeah. We, we cannot be doing that. In Isaiah chapter 53, and verses 4 through 6, it is a prediction, a prophecy of the suffering servant of God. And in those two verses, he talks about all the iniquity of us being poured out onto the Messiah. The wrath of God was even poured out onto Jesus. The, the wrath of God is his ultimate expression, his ultimate reaction to sin. And we have to be very careful with how we use it. It's not, us, it's not ours to use. It's ours to experience. It's ours to learn from. Finally, in the next several chapters, we have the introduction of Babylon. And I want to read this part. It's Revelation chapter 17. I want to read this. It's very dramatic. It's very PG-13, close to being R. But I want to read this because it's the Bible. Um, and it's important for us to listen to this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. The angel carried me away in the spirit 
into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beach that was covered with blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth, which is funny to me because it doesn't feel like a mystery. All right, has anyone ever tried to give you a, uh, like a hidden insult, what are those called? Um, are they like, they compliment you, but in reality it's an insult? Backhand, what is that? Backhanded compliment? I knew it, I knew the word would come to me. You know, someone's like, I'm gonna tell you something that's gonna be very hard for you to understand. You're awful, horrible, and you're gonna die. I'm like, I don't think that's really hard for me to understand. <laughs> Uh, what, what's amazing about this is it's it's not a mystery to us, but I'm pretty sure it's a mystery to her. Uh, because the way that sin works, if sin is missing the mark, if sin perverts us, if we were to go back to Adam and Eve at the moment right before he accuses or right before he punishes the serpent and says, you guys are kind of sounding like the devil at this moment. Do you think they would have heard that? Do you think they would have listened to what you had to say? When we are in the midst of sin, when we are in the midst of our own sin, it's very difficult to convince us that we are being sinful. Very difficult. I remember being, I was in a relationship for four years before Natalie, all right? This was right out of high school. I dated this girl for four years, and it was awful. It was horrible. I was awful horrible. She was awful and horrible. We were very poorly compatible, all right? And, but we tried to make it, man. We were like, I'm Church of Christ. I'm pulling myself up my own bootstraps. I'm like, we're gonna love each other. We're gonna like it. Um, and, yeah, and, and we, but the problem was we were both like that. And so we were both like, I hate you, but I'm gonna love you anyways. Like, this is not gonna work. And I remember finally breaking it off. And I remember breaking it off because I said, you will either marry me and move to Texas or we're done. And how is that not just the most romantic way to propose to somebody? She's like, I'm done. Like, I'm done too. And you feel the weight when you, once you make a difficult decision and you've known you needed to make that difficult decision for three and a half years, that weight kind of pulls off of you and you see for the first time, I can see clearly now. <laughs> this is going somewhere. And I remember the first conversation I had with my mother and I just remember like, mom, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me it was this bad? She's like, two things. One, I did. The other, you wouldn't listen to me anyway. Sin blinds us. There's a way for God to tell us something that to us, everyone else is obvious, but to us, it's a mystery. It's a mystery to her because she doesn't see it this way. See, Babylon, and, and again, I have to go into history and then I'll be done, I swear. Babylon at this time, it's nothing. Babylon used to be everything. All right, Babylon was a city. At first, it was a very prosperous city-state, all right, and then it was invaded by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians turned it into their capital, and it became bigger, all right? And then all of a sudden, the next empire to step into it was Persia. The Persian Empire came and conquered the Assyrians. Now, the Persians already had a capital. They had a capital way back east, all right? But they decided Babylon was so great, so awesome, it was also the doorway into the west. They decided to make Babylon their capital. And by the time Alexander the Great came along, Persia, or Babylon, represented globalization. It represented the peoples of the earth. It represented everywhere. It was the Tower of Babel, all right? This is where everyone decided to gather, all right? Babylon represented now, but it wasn't politically strong. If you're a student of history, Alexander the, King, uh, Alexander the Great came and absolutely annihilated it and destroyed it. 
But then he decided to make Babylon his capital. And he furthered this tradition, this cultural influence that this city had on the area. The next, after Alexander, the great fell apart. His generals decided to rip apart the world. The Seleucids, different empires, different people decided to take over Babylon. Now we get to Rome. And Rome is the new Babylon. Rome is the new city where everyone congregates. Rome is the largest city in the world. Millions of people. And if you're from the Middle East and the biggest town like Nazareth is maybe several hundred people big, to think of Rome where millions of people lived is outside of this world. Babylon, in which is used all throughout the Old Testament as a symbol of how God reacts to governments, how he reacts to worldly nations who are doing what only God can do, which is gather everybody, unify them, and purify them. And this is the punishment that he gives to Babylon. He goes, guys, he goes on and on and on. He labels all of her transgressions, all of her sins. And he even talks about people who will defend her. And he talks about those who will accuse her. And then once Babylon is destroyed, we see the rejoicing of the people of God, of the people of the world coming and saying, thank God she is dead and destroyed and gone. Babylon represents when we come before God and when we come before each other and we try to do what only God can do. And definitely on a governmental sense. When we try to take worldly powers and implement Jesus' teachings, this is Babylon. Babylon is its own theology. And God is very, very open about how he views Babylon and those nations and those peoples who would use their tactics to do the same thing. Whether it be Babylon, whether it be Assyria or Persia, whether it be the Greeks, whether it be the Romans, whether it be the United States. Babylon, though again, not written to us, is something that we can look at and say, man, I see a lot of similarities. I see a lot of ways that how I react to this. In the book of Revelation, we have very expansive, very dramatic views of what God sees, of how God experiences these things. And then he shows them to somebody like John, and John writes down what he sees, and he sends them to the people who are going to need it the most and says, can you learn from this? Now, as the Bible was built and as it was canonized, Revelation was included in it because there are lessons for us in this, though it was not written to us, just like the epistles were not written to us. There are lessons in there for us. But at this point, I have to leave you because next Sunday is gonna be all the positive stuff. Today's all the negative, world-destroying stuff. Uh, because I got, I love, that's just kinda how I like to do things. I like to present the negative and then come back next Sunday. You might see what God does. Because at this point, at the end, when he starts pro uh, proclaiming all the things that he's going to do to this, Babylon to this prostitute, to this sinner, this adulterer, who, by the way, we have also seen before. We've seen in the book of Proverbs, if you've ever read Proverbs. All right, we've seen her before. Um, and now we're going to look forward to see, all right, what is God's response to all of this? What is God's response? Is it just wrath? Is it just destruction? Because yes, God is in charge. I am not. God is God and I am not. I get all of that. But you've also promised a Messiah. God has promised a seed who will 
to oversimplify the problem, fix us, fix this relationship between me and him. And we are going to see Jesus in a way that has never been, well, I can't even say that because we see him in Daniel. We see the Son of Man presented in a very majestic, very kingship way. But I, again, I know I've already said this, but I'll leave you with this imagery of we've so far within the New Testament seen Jesus as a person, as a carpenter, as a humble servant. All right, we've seen him through the epistles as the sacrifice for us, the blood, the example in which we need to live. But so far within the New Testament, we have yet to see Jesus as king. The ones whom the Pharisees and the Jews actually wanted, the David king, we have yet to see him as that, with a sword in his hand, on a steed, ready to do battle. And we're about to, and it's gonna be, it's gonna be really awesome. So if you have any needs this morning, um, if you want material, uh, my material in the book of Revelation, uh, come find me. But if you have any needs this week, um, uh, any at all, if you would like to study this in person, um, if you would like us to pray over you, um, if there's just absolutely any needs, please come forward as we stand and as we continue to worship God. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thy shall my glory be. Lest I forget thy
and the people who gather here can call your name Father for Jesus Christ whose death gave us all the assurance that we get to spend eternity with you if we accept him and if we do our best Father we love you so much be with us as we depart may we Father be an example of the people we meet of your love and Christ's love for them. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.